What It Takes is brought to you by AES, a Fortune 500 global energy company. Together with its customers, AES is setting a new standard for the future of energy to create a 100% carbon-free world. AES partners with organizations, no matter where they're at in their energy journey, to co-create the greener, smarter energy solutions the world needs. AES's team of more than 500 clean energy innovators in the U.S. find solutions that are both economically viable and environmentally friendly. AES is also walking the walk to achieve net zero carbon emissions from electricity sales by 2040. Learn more about how AES can empower you to achieve your energy goals and create the energy future we all need at AES.com. What It Takes is also brought to you by DLA Piper, a full-service global law firm that works with leading technology companies and their investors to meet all their legal needs. DLA Piper has been instrumental in Powerhouse's growth, as it has been for hundreds of companies changing the way we power our world. DLA Piper has lawyers in 40 countries across the Americas, Middle East, Africa, and Asia-Pacific, wherever you're doing business. DLA Piper delivers value to its clients. It helps startups go from garage to global, and it helps established technology companies to grow smartly. You can subscribe to DLA Piper's thought leadership events and publications at dlapiper.com. I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our zero carbon future a reality. In this episode, my conversation with Robin Beavers, the co-founder and CEO of Blueprint Power. Blueprint works with real estate companies to turn their buildings into power plants. It has a piece of software that helps building owners optimize the use of cogeneration, fuel cells, solar, or batteries. Robin has a long history in tech, real estate, and the energy world. She was an early employee at Google and went on to found the company's environmental strategy group. She later built the innovation team at NRG. Then she went into the world of real estate, where she oversaw venture investments in real estate tech at Lennar. In this conversation, I spoke with Robin about how she brought all those experiences together in hopes of making buildings more dynamic actors on the grid. This conversation was recorded live at Powerhouse's headquarters in Oakland, California at the start of 2020, before the pandemic. Perfect. So Robin, you've worked at some big companies, including Google, as well as Vestas, which is the largest wind company in the world. Uh, You also worked at NRG, one of the country's largest energy corporations. Uh, You've also worked at Lennar, one of the country's largest real estate companies. And now you're the co-founder and CEO of Blueprint Power, which is turning buildings into power plants. Can you tell us exactly what that means and what is Blueprint Power? Sure. Yeah, thank you. So Blueprint Power is a New York City-based startup, and we've built a software platform that ingests data from buildings and energy markets and other places that like to buy electricity. And we help decide how to manage uh, distributed energy assets at buildings, things like rooftop solar, battery energy storage, In New York, there's a lot of combined heat and power, um, even loads. And you can manage those buildings to make the building itself a flexible resource that can help support the grid or supply, um, you know, services to other electricity consumers. And so your customers are the building owners, is that right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, basically, as the grid is seeking more distributed nodes, you know, it's becoming a more distributed network all the time that puts buildings really in like the best seat. Uh, Buildings host the energy, you know, the distributed energy resources. It's also full of demand. You know, buildings are full of people and it's a really exciting time for the real estate industry to take advantage of this evolving, um, this evolving infrastructure around us. So going back uh, to long before Blueprint Power was born, going back to when you were born, uh, you were born at Stanford Hospital here in California. You moved around a lot as a kid, including living for a year in Japan when you were five years old before settling down in Carlisle, Massachusetts. I know your mom was a full-time parent and your dad was an engineer turned corporate executive who worked at GE and later the oil and gas company Schlumberger and then later the Stanford Research Institute. What about your upbringing? made you who you are? So, uh, yeah, we moved around a lot growing up. So I think that made me very used to uh, a lot of change and a lot of 
uh, different locations. I've moved around a lot in my adult life too. And um, I think just being exposed to different cultures and different locations and, you know, just different ways of being around the world has um, really impacted my point of view. It's, I love always trying to connect dots or see trends across a lot of different things. Um, so that I think had a lot to do with my childhood. And I was also the youngest of a big family. So I don't know, I got like teased a lot and beaten up a lot. <laughs> How many? Not beaten up, it was all, it was all sisters, but you know. <laughs> How many of you? Um, there was four of us total. So um, it was, I mean, it was great, but you know, being the youngest has its perks, but also it's oh yeah, it makes challenges. It tough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I know your dad was an engineer with a PhD in electrical engineering, and after high school, you returned to your place of birth at Stanford to study civil engineering. Why civil engineering? Uh, when I started Stanford, I knew I wanted to pursue engineering. I didn't know what kind, uh, and it was daunting uh, once I started uh, undergrad. Uh, so at one point, I took a little break from all the en core engineering classes and discovered I loved architecture uh, and then realized I wasn't talented enough to be an architect. That's its own thing. So uh, and then I found out civil engineering was a great way to uh, spend a lot of time with buildings and bridges and, uh, you know, connect uh, the structural world with, you know, and balancing it with the natural world around us. I just thought that was really fascinating. So just a year out of undergrad, uh, in 2004, you were 22 years old. You got a job as one of the first four executive assistants to Google's co-founders. And there were four of you that were the first executive assistants to Larry and Sergey. You were providing 24-7 coverage to the two of them. You were helping them plan their travels to Davos and helping them buy houses and a plane. Uh, and you even planned the, their IPO, the roadshow for their IPO. Mm -hmm. um, how, first, how did you find this job? And second, what was it like? <laughs> what was it like being in that role, especially just coming out of undergrad? Sure. Uh, so I found that job by putting my resume on a website called monster.com. <laughs> so I think that's still around. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, I think that's it. I put my resume there and got a call uh, that they were looking for local, you know, local recent engineering grads, actually. And uh, I, my first response was, uh, I have an engineering degree. Why would I take this job? Um, but I decided to pursue it and, you know, check it out. And uh, it turned out to be a really fascinating journey to get that job. I met with, I mean, interviewed with um, very prominent Google executives and a lot of, you know, really talented, pro you know, just a lot of the early Googlers who, um, you know, leave a, still leave a big impact today in, in Silicon Valley. So it was a great opportunity. And at some point I realized, you know what, maybe I should take this job. <laughs> it seems like a great, something's going on here. And uh, so I took it and it, yeah, it was, it was fascinating. What did you know or think about Google at the time? Oh, I mean, I was so idealistic back then. I mean, I still am, but I was very, you know, I thought Google was the man. I'm like, this is too big. This is too big mm -hmm. of a company for me to join. How big were they when you did join? Um, they were about 2,000 people. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> when I left, they were 20,000 people. And I know when we talked previously, you described it as, uh, you know, I asked what, what was it like early on and you said it was the devil wears Prada for nerds. Oh yeah. Yeah. Say, say more about that. Like, it, um, I mean, there was a lot of really, it wasn't just, uh, we were helping Larry and Sergey, you know, enter this big growth period of, of their lives and their company. And, um, so the, I mean, most of it was fascinating and we were flies on the wall of a lot of, um, you know, things that. I, you know, I know we're historic moments in many ways in, in the business and tech world. Um, but yeah, there's funny moments too. I know you just got back from Davos, mm -hmm. right? So I, I, I have a funny Davos plane story. Oh, do tell. <laughs> um, so I, you know, planned one of their first visits there. I think it was their first visit. And, uh, you know, that's a whole, a whole thing. But on the way back, uh, we, we chartered a flight. There was no Google airline at the time and <laughs> not, yet. Uh, not yet and uh, the plane broke uh, when we arrived at the airport it wasn't working and um, everyone 
in the world is using a private plane. So it's hard to find a spare one sitting around. Um, so that was a really stressful moment because I had to find another plane. And we had a room full of VIPs, as you can imagine. Um, you know, it was, uh, you know, the current governor of California and the former vice president, Al Gore, and um, some really impressive tech People. I'm impressed that they were all sharing one plane. Yeah, it was like at, it was like a plane plane pool. We were being efficient, you know. Uh, it was good to fill it up. And um, Chris Tucker was there, the comedian, and uh, he's really funny. Yeah, did that make it better? Uh, yeah, that was great. Actually, um, Al Gore is also very funny. He's hilarious. So everyone like kept themselves, you know, entertained while I was finding a plane. Um, and we found one and flew, flew back. And on the flight, uh, you know, we're all finally relaxed. And um, Vice President Al Gore said, hey, I'm, I'm working on the slideshow. Do you mind if I, guys show, you, if I show you guys? No way. Mm-hmm. Wow. So we saw like the first draft of An Inconvenient Truth wow. on the fl- flight back. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Did you have any feedback for him? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. Probably. (laughs) I mean, I don't know what I would, yeah, I was young back then, so I was probably oblivious to some few, a few things there. (laughs) So you pretty quickly moved from your role as executive assistant to green business and operations strategy. You founded and led the first environmental strategy group at Google and led the largest corporate solar installation where she oversaw at the time, which was 1.7 megawatts, which is what you know. How did you make that transition from EA to green business and ops strategy? And what did you learn in the Yeah, energy. It sounds so much like energy. So um, as part of my... Sergey and Larry's support role, I was actually representing them on a lot of their design and construction projects of their offices worldwide. That was one thing that was happening post-IPO. They were building out, you know, their culture and their offices around the world. Um, So given a lot of my summer jobs had been construction sites and architecture firms, I, you know, was there as their rep. And um, knowing how much they cared about the environment at the time, I started sneaking in a lot of green building features um, and, you know, sort of revealing at the end and they loved it and wanted more. It was something, you know, they were, you know, very first movers around. Um, But you you took the initiative yourself. It's not something that you talked to them about beforehand. You just did it and then said, hey, look, isn't this great? And they... they liked it. Yeah, that's I. That's how I Sounds remember like an it happening. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I realized Google. You know, at the same time as learning about the data center um, footprint as well and how those worked. And there's an, also amazing people there uh, working and thinking about efficiency of servers. And um, so that's when I realized Google had this big leadership opportunity um, to to you know really set an example for the you know, the corporate world and the tech world and start making moves. Um, So I wrote my own job description and put it in front of them and said, I I would like to go do this for the company. And they said, sure, go do it. And so you were ultimately there for four years when you joined. You said it was about 2,000 people. How many people after four years when you left were the company? 20,000 people in four years. Uh, and, And then I remember you telling me that you felt like after about four years, you felt like you hit a glass ceiling. Tell me about that feeling. What was happening? Yeah, I don't. It's there. I th- I don't know if it was like specifically a glass ceiling, but any company that grows that fast, and I, I believe a lot of other talent at the company, kind of of my um, tenure, they we all sort of left around the same time. Like you know, the product talent again, people leaving and going doing amazing things. Um, and uh, I, you just have to fill and grow the company so quickly. And often the senior roles were, you know, stacked up with outsiders and a lot of, um, I, this is a problem I think any fast growing company faces anytime, but um, a lot of the, you know, early, younger, like product talent in particular, or who had kind of been there from the beginning and really helped build the company and got it to where it is, you know, the, it was hard to see where you could go mm-hmm. from there. And, um, you know, uh, it was full of a lot of entrepreneurial people too, who mm-hmm. were all, well, I'll go try stuff on my own. Yeah. So, so I think any, I think any, um, high growth company will face those types of issues. And it's, it's actually just a really good case study and something to think about for, for others who are mm. in that situation or mm-hmm. anticipate being in it. Did any of it, did the transition feel, was any of it gender-based? Did it feel like an inhibiting factor? I mean, it's, 
it's tech. So, you know, gender imbalance was definitely there back then. And, um, but I, I don't know. I think it was more just like chaos of growth. (laughs) Um, so well said. Yeah. Um, so you, you pursued an MBA also at Stanford, um, where you also did civil engineering and undergrad, and then you went directly into the clean energy world, uh, by working in Copenhagen at Vestas, the world's largest wind company, um, focused on, you were focusing on emerging markets and then your path after Vestas included a couple characters who all came together in interesting ways. <laughs> so first Dean Kamen, um, the inventor of Segway, and then Richard Branson and his island, uh, his his uh, private island, and then the former CEO of NRG and former What It Takes guest, David Crane. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me about how these puzzle pieces came together. Uh, well, um, really interesting people like to hang out with each other, first of all. <laughs> so um, that that helps. But uh, yeah, with Dean, I mean, he is a famed inventor and has um, many of his technologies and inventions have delivered huge impact a lot in the um, medical product world. And uh, First Robotics, you know, the nonprofit is an, ed- an education STEM nonprofit that I think is his greatest invention. Um, and then he had some distributed water and energy products. So um, I I was linked up with him. I, I loved Vestas, but I was really uh, excited about distributed energy systems um, and really wanted to dig into that. So knowing I was introduced to Dean, he had these small distributed technologies, needed someone to help think about strategies to build around them. So uh, I dove in there and helped him build some strategies. And that led to connecting with NRG, who was thinking about similar strategies, looking for great technologies. Um, And then Richard Branson, you know, is always thinking, I think, a few steps ahead, especially when it comes to climate. And he had this island with a bunch of diesel generators. And uh, anyway, somehow they all figured out that there's a way to, to work together. And you worked with them. Um, you worked with Richard Branson on his Necker Island project, converting it from diesel, being diesel powder, powered to renewable power. Does that yeah, right? we, we helped design uh, the microgrid that is still in place. And uh, it's yeah we sh- we shifted from 100% diesel to battery energy storage uh, solar. There's wind now. We we plan when it took a long time to install wind on that island. It's very difficult with coral reefs everywhere <laughs> mm-hmm. to um, to erect a wind turbine uh, and you know sophisticated load control too. And it really um, helped free up that island from diesel generation. Mm-hmm. Um, and we. It was tested a lot sooner than we anticipated by uh, extreme weather events. Mm. Um, so right after the solar um, was installed and the battery was installed, there was, you know, you always design things to, you know, maximum like wind speeds or, you know, you plan for the worst and mm. we got the worst right mm. away, mm-hmm. but it's still still working. Yeah. Good. Yeah. <laughs> and then what did, I know, so you met David Crane uh, through the work with Richard Branson? Uh, through Dean, through Dean. actually. Okay. Yeah. And then what did, I know David recruited you to join NRG. What did he recruit you to do? Uh, so I came out here and set up an innovation team for the company. Um, and we ended up focusing primarily on microgrids, which was a new topic then um, and very early stage. So we spent a lot of time like explaining or defining what a microgrid is, which I actually still think people still have a hard, you know, microgrid's still a loose term in the industry. Uh, and then, yeah, just working with a lot of first mover partners. Um, we, we worked with the city of San Francisco, thinking about district scale infrastructure for all the new redevelopment here. Uh, there was a couple of vineyards, you know, vineyards are always first movers. Um, <laughs> And, uh, you know, just learned a lot about the future of, of energy and where the industry was heading. Um, so that was, a, and, you know, supporting a lot of the other clean energy efforts around mm-hmm. the company at the time. Mm-hmm. And I know that work exposed you to the real estate side of the industry. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. About that. I mean, every, every microgrid project we did at the time or some type of effort, eventually a real estate person would pop up and be sniffing around <laughs> or I, it was just a pattern I noticed. And, um, I didn't really know much about real estate at the time. Um, but you know, realized that it was, it was just a more, there were enough data points to show it was a trend. Um, so I, that's actually why I chose to really learn about it after NRG and, and joined the largest home builder in the U S they had a bunch of other 
excuse me, subsidiaries as well. They um, and that's Lennar. That's Lennar. Yeah. Excuse me. Yep. Yeah. They um, they own Treasure Island, the land of Treasure Island, and they've been redeveloping Hunters Point here. Mm-hmm. So that's one of their subsidiaries. Um, they build a lot of communities around the country. They have a growing multifamily business. They had a real estate investment fund. Uh, subsidiary. They, they're actually big finance. You know, they, they um, are loan originator. I mean, they do everything. So it was a really great learning experience um, to see how the industry worked. They had already been dabbling in energy too. They built their own rooftop solar company well before I showed up um, for their new homes. And um, it just, it was a great way to see that world from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. And so you joined Lennar, um how many years ago now? Was oh, that? I knew it was going to be bad at this time. <laughs> um, I, I think it was like four years ago. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> Lost track. Um, and you led investments in emerging technologies at Lennar, which you mentioned, largest home construction company in the country. Um, to an outside observer, it does seem like a, a interesting transition because your entire career had been in energy. Mm-hmm. Um, but it sounds like you're starting to put these these pieces together in your mind between energy and real estate, given the experience that you had uh, with the microgrid work at energy. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, well, I love it. Buildings are my first love. So it's great to <laughs> get back in the built environment. Um, but so what... I know this this crowd here is uh, very focused on energy innovation and a lot of trends here. What's what's happening in parallel is um, a big kind of boom of real estate innovation, real estate tech innovation, um, of which energy is a category within it, um, but a lot of other type of of tech. Um, uh, tech disruptive plays, or it's a huge venture category now. Um, The real estate industry itself has been spending a lot of time um, understanding it and adopting it and even becoming investors themselves. So um, that, to me, was also really interesting because in some ways it was moving faster than the energy industry had. Mm. Um, It was just more more adaptive to this opportunity. um, And they were, it just seemed like people were getting organized faster. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I liked that (laughs) Um, because I um, am often frustrated by by timing um, of the energy industry. So um, I wanted to sort of think about how you could take energy out of energy and put it in real estate so things would move faster. Interesting, interesting. And say more about that, the impatience with the energy industry. Oh, I mean, amazing things have happened. I shouldn't say that. It's always great. It's really fun to look back in the last couple of decades, see all the progress made. But, you know, there's we've all worked with the energy industry. It's, you know, players in it. And it it's just slow. And it's, it's such a big mess of regulatory... Um, entrenched mentality. Um, I think just the general assumption that it's all really complicated and therefore like very few people understand it and therefore it just should be a certain, it's like all of that is no longer relevant and I'm just not sure everyone's realized that yet. What It Takes is brought to you by AES, a Fortune 500 global energy company. AES imagines a future that is 100% carbon-free, and it's doing the work today to make that future a reality. AES is partnering with organizations to help them transition to new, smarter, and cleaner solutions, all while continuing to meet their energy needs and give them a competitive edge. Creating a greener future for everyone means working together globally across industries of every kind, from utilities in Hawaii to corporations in Virginia and at every stage of development. In the U.S. alone, AES's clean energy business is leveraging its 2.5 gigawatt portfolio of renewables and 12 gigawatt development pipeline to co-create and scale innovative solutions like solar, wind, energy storage, and hybrid clean technology portfolios to make the biggest impact to both your sustainability and business goals. AES is setting a new standard for the future of energy. Learn more about how you can join at AES.com. What It Takes is also supported by DLA Piper. DLA Piper has been instrumental in Powerhouse's growth and success as it has been for hundreds of companies changing the way we power our world. 
DLA Piper's team of technology sector lawyers supports clients with their legal needs across the globe. As demand for zero-carbon energy and other climate solutions grows, startups and established companies in the energy sector are looking to their lawyers to provide more than just legal knowledge. They're also seeking in-depth sector know-how and innovative solutions to the challenges they face. DLA Piper's energy lawyers deliver focused, creative sector advice wherever in the world clients need it. Being both global and local, DLA Piper understands the technical, geographical, commercial, and geopolitical factors that shape the energy sector. DLA Piper also has a podcast called Beyond the Curve, which features topics and guests from across the business spectrum. Its goal is to help businesses and communities navigate the challenges they face in today's world. You can find Beyond the Curve on podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, and find more about programs and publications at dlapiper.com. So I feel like you've already listed out what many people would consider an entire career over a lifetime from <laughs> the work with the Google co-founders to Vestas to working with Dean Kamen and then Branson and then David Crane at NRG. Um, but at 36 years old, you decided to leave Lennar to spin out your company, Blueprint Power. Tell me about the decision. What, what precipitated the decision to start your own company? Um... So I think anytime someone starts a company, it's a mixture of, you know, passion, of course, um, seeing an opportunity or a gap to fill, but it's also about timing. Uh, and, you know, if the market is ready to accept what you want to do. And uh, again, by um, understanding, I feel like I've been collecting pieces of a puzzle to come together and see how all these worlds can collide and create, you know, great, exciting new platforms. And so I think I just realized timing was aligning, um, knowing, again, trends in energy, a lot of great regulatory movement was happening in New York and other places for, thanks to efforts like Rev or, you know, general focus on deregul, you know, continued deregulation of energy markets. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, knowing that the commercialization of energy technologies was accelerating, things were cheaper, things were better, uh, and then also just seeing the real estate industry uh, really want more of it. I mean, so one one quick anecdote: um, when I was at Lennar, I was helping them. Uh, I set up their corporate venture platform and led deals for them in, you know, real estate tech uh, deals that had nothing to do with energy. But as I sat shoulder to shoulder with other real estate companies, other real estate verticals, either in the deals or looking at the same ones, once they heard my energy background, that's all they wanted to talk about. Mm. And I, I realized there was, a, there was a demand from them. They were also very educated on the topic and sort of wanting more from it. And knowing that these big trends were happening on the energy side, I was just like, oh, I mm -hmm. think it's time, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's, that's when it was, um, it made sense to finally take the plunge. Mm. And how did you exactly do it? it? It was a spin out of Lennar. It sounds like they actually invested. Yeah, yeah, they're huge supporters of Blueprint. Yeah. Um, I, I, they, again, they're sophisticated, um, they're very successful management business team. So, uh, first I had to convince them that, uh, not just to spin it out, but it was a good business. Mm -hmm. And, um, that I felt like was a great, uh, part of the process to get that mm -hmm. very rigorous, um, diligence and, um, also a lot of support from them in that process. So, um, I, I actually, it's not a conventional approach, but I, I really um, am appreciative of it. Mm. And so once they realized there was a great opportunity and it was more of an industry play versus um, like a specific, you know, Lennar play, um, then it, they were excited about the, the idea of spinning it out. And um, yeah, we're very supportive about it. Mm -hmm. And were there other investors that came in as part of that pre-seed or seed round? Yeah, that so that spin out, we, um, Lennar and Fifth Wall Ventures, which is a big real estate tech fund. Um, and uh, also BMW had a like urban technology focused accelerator in New York. Um, so we, we, you know, they're a, a, an investor um, and then another big real estate exec mm -hmm. um, kind of got us all started and on our own two feet. Mm -hmm. And then were you able to pay yourself from day one? I know. No. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. I feel like often, yeah, oftentimes yeah. We, we go without it for a while to get things off yeah. the ground. What was that time like for you? Oh, I mean, it, I was able to do that. So, um, you know, I, 
it's just a big, you know, cost benefit analysis decision. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, not, I, it's, it's a sacrifice no matter what. And I think anyone making that decision, um, you know, has their own inputs and outputs of that equation. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, it's, it's tough, but it feels, um, you know, when you're so, it, when you believe in what you're doing and um, you, it's, you know, it's a big risk-taking moment. So I don't know, it all sort of, make, it's a little easier in some ways to do those drastic moves mm -hmm. um, when you know what you're doing is like pretty drastic <laughs> already. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Tell me about your co-founders. Great. Yeah. So they're, um, my co-founders are, uh, they worked with me at NRG. And so we were able to like reconvene, which was exciting. Um, Claire Wu, she's a big battery storage expert, PhD chemical engineer. Uh, and then Nick Squires was at Boeing for a long time. He's more of a software architect. So we brought a lot of complementary skill sets together. Um, and I know you, yeah, started off in and are still based in New York City. You hired, in addition to your co-founders, you hired your first employee, who's now the CTO. Um, what were the early days of Blueprint like as you're figuring out product and product market fit and identifying your first customers? What did that look like? Yeah, so one of... <laughs> We were in a tiny room <laughs> and just, you know, cranking, working really hard, getting everything set up. I mean, anyone who started a company knows you're starting from scratch. Everything from processes, culture, product, you know, even just starting to code, there's a lot you just have to be organized about. Uh, so, you know, obviously busy with that. Um, because of who our investors were, you know, between Lennar and Fifth Wall, uh, which was, you know, what we had hoped for and were excited to have, uh, we actually had access to the real estate industry, you know, very early on and very high touch introductions. And so we, our customer engagement was, was very early and they were in many ways collaborators with us. Uh, so that, that for me was very important no matter what. And, um, yeah, that, that did work out at the beginning, mm. from what, the beginning. What are the demographics of your customers like and how does that fit into your sales cycle and partnership cultivation? Sure. So mo we're, New York City is our first market. Um, and so we work with large commercial real estate owners, a mixture of REIT, you know, publicly traded REITs, uh, privately owned portfolios, which are massive companies in New York, <laughs> um, even affordable housing platforms. Uh, we've talked with many city and government agencies who own a lot of real estate. Uh, they, you know, are, are also similarly focused. So it's a broad range of real estate. They all have different incentives. They have different things they care about. Um, a lot of it's similar, but uh, you know, it's a, it's a pretty diverse group, uh, which is also really fun. Um, and then for them, say more about what exactly you're selling to them when they come to you or you have the chance to sit down and meet with them. Mm -hmm. What do you tell them? So we're selling revenues to them. We're generating new revenues for the buildings. And that is a great sales pitch. <laughs> they want those. Uh, but what's really interesting is, you know, two years ago when we started this, uh, that was, you know, the main driver of the conversation. Um, even though we knew what we were doing was accelerating the demand for more clean energy and the decarbonization of buildings, that wasn't a factor in our conversations and we were totally fine with that. You know, we just wanted to grow, which means it has to be something they want and revenues obviously is great. So that was fine. And then, you know, in the last year though, that's, that's changed. We now talk a lot more about decarbonization mm -hmm. with our partners. Um, that's a lot to do with uh, the rise of ESG, which is like the new term for corporate social responsibility. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, a lot of institutional investors are really pressuring mm -hmm. um, boards and executives to, you know, get their act together around that. Um, and there's laws being passed, as I'm sure many of you are aware, cities are um, kind of in, are enacting decarbonization legislation that in some shape or form end up targeting buildings. And uh, that can be a financial consideration for many of our partners. Um, and then a lot of them actually just care about it and now I think want to do more. And so I've even in our short life 
lifetime as a company, that conversation has evolved and expanded, which of course is is thrilling for us. It's just not something I anticipated right away. Mm-hmm. And give us an example of a customer that you've kind of walked through the journey with Blueprint Power. What does it look like when they first come to you and what do you do with them along that cycle? Oh, it's a range. You know, some are, um, well, most of our partners are really, like I said, very smart on this stuff. So uh, the conversations are really fun right away. We can talk about really big picture things and, uh, you know, have very specific plans to get there and there's a clear path. Um, we have some conversations with real estate uh, companies that, you know, they're like, oh, I kind of want to be a power plant. That sounds cool, mm-hmm. you know, and you have to do, you do have to start. Um, you know, with an education moment there. Um, so it's, it is a range, but generally it's, all right, what's the goal? What's the mandate? How do we get there? Um, and then Blueprint's product platform supports that. Gotcha. And as far as the product goes, um, what has the product development look like specifically as it relates to commercial buildings? And I know you're using machine learning. Um, how does that all fit together into what you're offering your commercial customers? Sure. So um, if buildings are going to become, you know, part of the discrete, like very critical pieces of the distributed grid, they need to be very dynamic in nature and respond to a lot of different signals from power markets, from the grid, you know, from, from tenants. Um, and that means any product you're, you're designing needs to be flexible as well and uh, very adaptable. Um, so our our machine learning is very much, our, you know, all of our data models that we've built are there to ensure we're like able to real time do the best thing for each building um, on its own and also across portfolios. So we can aggregate buildings um, and we can also really decide where we're monetizing them. So the thesis of, of us, our of blueprint is Everything's changing all the time, whether it's technology, the places we're going to sell our supply, the prices of the markets, the rules of the markets. (laughs) As we know, it's changing all the time. Um, So we've just designed our architecture to accommodate for that. And so sometimes that takes a little bit more upfront work, but uh, we, we, you know, we know that's how it is. So it's important work. Um, So yeah, and then every building will be you know, it'll have its own toolkit of on-site energy assets. Uh, so just being prepared for just every building will be a little different. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can design for that. Mm-hmm. What are the on-site energy assets that are most common with your customers? Um, so in New York, there's a lot of combined heat and power because of the colder climate. Um, and there at one point was a ton of incentive money <laughs> for them. So they're everywhere. Um, and they actually, you know, are, are great options today. Um, there's solar. Is solar's, believe it or not, big in New York and the outer. Bur- Everyone thinks of tall skyscrapers, mm-hmm. but there's five boroughs mm-hmm. of New York, and there's a lot of different types of buildings. And solar is growing. Uh, batteries have hit a snag in New York City uh, due to fire, um, the fire uh, permitting and code issues, um, which have sort of stalled the industry and. Um, the battery supplier industry being ready. Anyway, that's a, I'm sure many of you here can feel that pain right now. Um, so, but everyone wants batteries. <laughs> so that'll come. It'll just be another year or two probably. Uh, and then there's a lot of different load management strategies, of course, as with every building. So, uh, but yeah. So I'd say mostly combined heat and power, solar, and some load management strategies. There's some thermal, you know, ice storage going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's exciting. <laughs> You want to say more about that? No, I mean, it's just great. Yeah, it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I know you brought with you um, uh, the investment experience from Lennar, your co-founders from NRG. Were there things or pieces of knowledge from other places like Vestas or Google that you brought with you to start Blueprint? Well, I think my obsession with distributed networks comes from Google <laughs> uh, and trying to make sure that we can build that type of distributed network in cities around the world, you know, delivering clean energy and revenues to the real estate community. Uh, so that's, you know, and Google, you know, you're just, you just assume you can solve a lot of problems and uh, just, it's, it's an oper- you know, it's a, it's a very optimistic point of view. And that definitely came from my time with Larry and Sergey uh, and, you know, the others there. I'd say from Vestas, um, I mean, that's just a global supply chain 
infrastructure company, and um, that's always impressive, and there's always lots to learn from that. So I, I look forward to the day when Blueprint is operating in as many countries <laughs> as Asbestos and um, you know building out new clean infrastructure just in our own way. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned the round that Lennar participated in along with Fifth Wall and others. What was it like raising capital? And it sounds like that was a seed round, and I know you're raising an A now. What was it like raising the seed round and, and how is it different now? Sure. So we actually had a different, we had another round in between there mm-hmm. too that uh, was really fun. We brought together kind of a syndicate of clean tech experts, which is congruent ventures, um, and some more real estate tech players, which um, Metaprop and, and Zig Capital, which are based in New York, all of their LPs are real estate partners, future customers of ours. Uh, and then Fred Wilson and Brad Burnham from Union Square Ventures um, invested as well. It was, I think, their first ever like dabbling in energy. And um, it was great. We loved bringing that syndicate together. Um, and But at some point in the process, I realized that's what I, I had to do because there wasn't one-stop shop for a company like us. We, mm. we crossed a lot of worlds. Um, and we, you know, so we, we kind of brought it all together. Um, and uh, we're, I, I love it. We're very fortunate because of that. But I think now that's, it's changing, obviously, a lot of, um, well, so the, the capital markets kind of investor world has changed a lot in terms of focus on um, distributed clean energy. There's billions of dollars being organized uh, to deploy into owning and financing uh, assets at buildings, which before was like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> and they're more focused on utility scale or you know residential. Um, so that's changed quite a bit. So that's that's been a momentum uh, we've been noticing and excited about. And then I, I do believe the venture community has also been more climate focused in the last few months. Especially um, in the last week. In the last <laughs> week. Um, yeah, 2020 is like ready to go. It's great. So um, obviously we're thrilled about that and um, just hope there's more dialogue about it. And um, there's a lot of great funds out there that you know, have been sticking with it, you know, this whole time. And um, hopefully they can help, you know, mentor a lot of the new interest in there. Um, so I, yeah, we'll see. But I think it's, I, I don't know. I, I've, in this career of mine, I've seen a lot of, you know, at least a couple booms and bust cycles mm-hmm. of, of clean energy. Um, whether it was like, you know, the cost of solar panels, you know, <laughs> crashing everything or the cost of financing mm-hmm. solar panels, crashing everything. And, uh, you know, one could be cynical about if it will ever be like a stable upward trajectory. But I really think what's happening now is um, different because of all the different important players trying to figure out how to contribute. So to me, I'm very excited about it. What advice would you have for entrepreneurs that are just at the beginning stages of raising capital? Oh, just, you know, roll up those sleeves. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's hard. Raising capital is hard, especially if it's your first time, I think, doing it. I think it's probably easier if you've you've done it as an entrepreneur before um, and had a company before. So I, I just get a lot of advice, talk to a lot of other folks who've gone through it, um, get some tough skin, and, um, and also just treat it as a great feedback process as well. I, I learned a lot in all of my conversations, and, um, you know, you're, you're, regardless of who you end up with as your investors, you're usually talking to really thoughtful, smart people, and you're both taking the time to talk to each other. So I think it's a good chance to use it as well to to learn and iterate, um, you know, even though how, despite of how hard it is. Mm. What about your strategy has changed since starting Blueprint Power? Um, what would what, what have been the big successes, the big challenges? Um, so there's a lot of challenges outside of our control at Blueprint, uh, mostly regulatory. <laughs> and I'd say the battery issue in New York City was the one problem we really couldn't Solve like we we face a lot of surprises and challenges, but it's a problem solving team, and you know we're usually not daunted by it. The um, the delay of 
batteries being able to be deployed in buildings in New York or near buildings in New York uh, was a setback, not just for us, but for kind of many, many layers of our world. So uh, that, you know, that was a bummer. Um, it'll, it'll be fine in the future. We just were hoping it would happen sooner. Um, and, but, you know, that is what it is. We couldn't, we tried to fix it and we couldn't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, what were the, the hardest moments, the days that stand out as the ones that were most difficult? Oh, I mean, they're all hard. It's really hard starting a company and running one. Um, I, you know, but it's all, I don't think there's one that stands out. It's all, it's thrilling and it, um, it's a huge learning experience, not just at how to run a business or, you know, how to build a product, but it's a big self-awareness moment. I think we were talking earlier, um, you know, the biggest surprise to me was once we raised, you know, money, I... You, you have, I had this instantaneous realization about what money was. Um, it's not just cash, it's actually time. Mm. And I looked at my bank account, you know, Blueprint's bank account, and all I could see was an hourglass. Mm. <laughs> and um, you, it's so, that to me was really surprising and that, you know, how quickly that's how I felt. And then um, the other surprise was how, your, one of your biggest challenges as a CEO of a startup is um, how you're pacing, like how you manipulate time and money to keep either keep you going as fast as you need to or, you know, slowing down if you need to based on a ton of different factors. And that, that like art form is, is something you just have to learn by doing. And that was, you know, I, I don't think you know, despite my MBA and a lot of amazing people I've worked for, I don't think I was, re I don't think I was aware that mm -hmm. that was going to be what, cons like I was obsessed with, mm -hmm. <laughs> and so that to me is, um, I I think, you know, something I think about a lot still, and um, I think it's important for everyone, you know, doing anything is uh, like in, um, entrepreneurial or it, it's just, it was fascinating to me how that relationship with money changed mm -hmm. so quickly. Um, so yeah, that's, I like, I, it's just still fascinating to me mm -hmm. and I'm sure it'll change over time how I feel about it. And, um, but yeah, I, I didn't expect that. Mm. In that hourglass analogy, does it feel like blueprint has, been too slow to kind of deploy and move as quickly as you can? Or have you done that too quickly and you've had to learn how to pull back and pace yourself? Uh, so we have been quite pragmatic. I think we've been pretty methodical, uh, mostly because we anticipated some challenges that were, would be out of our control and we didn't want to get caught uh, at, at an early stage. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I think generally we've been really good, like on time with our pacing. Uh, but I don't know, like you always wish you're going faster or sometimes I, it, it's, it's a whirlwind. <laughs> um, but I think it's, it just, it's, it, there's, the pacing depends on a lot of things, like which industry, what's happening around you, what's going on in the market, uh, how ready your product is or how your customer traction is going. All those things just factor in so that toggling up and down or ramping up and down is whether even if it's just like little percentage points, it it can feel like a lot for the for the company and the team. So it's I think that's what is a, a really interesting point, you know, aspect about startups. Mm -hmm. When you were starting Blueprint Power, what did you think was going to be the hardest thing and what has actually been the hardest part? Um, I assumed it would all be hard. <laughs> I mean, smart, smart. I don't think there's anything that looked easy to me about it. Um, I think, I thought, I actually thought convincing the real estate industry this was important would be really hard, but it's not. Mm. There, you know, that's like, the, we love our real estate partners and talking to real estate partners. Um, so that's, that wasn't as hard. I, I think... I don't know. It, there's just like, everything's hard, <laughs> but it's not. It's not daunting. It's mm. just you know, it's problem solving and um, you know, intuition and and uh, hard work. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what we all signed up for. Mm -hmm. How does it compare to finding a plane to get people home from Davos? I mean, that was really hard. <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't want to do that again. <laughs> Did you have mentors throughout the process of building Blueprint, which you just started two years ago? Yes. Have you had mentors and have you had peers that you can go to when there's something happening that you don't know how to do? Well, I mean, I love my investors and in many ways they're, they're mentors uh, and advisors. So that, uh, I, yes, I am not afraid to, to lean on them and ask for advice. Uh, so that's, that's been great. Uh, I think throughout my life, you know, I've always had kind of a, a, a team behind the scenes of folks to, to talk to. This is such a, a unique experience that, um, I think maybe some of them are helpful in some ways, and but some of it's so new. It's there is a lot of self discovery as well. Um, so I I'd say I mostly right now rely on your investors. I mean, you're surrounded by people who want you to succeed and want to problem solve with you, and that's a really important feeling to have too when you're doing this. Um, how's it been being a relatively young woman in this industry that especially when you combine real estate and energy <laughs> tech venture very much skews older male? I, I mean, that's normal for me that my whole career has been that way. I, between engineering and yeah, I, I like to pick them, you know, um, actually the, the most women I've ever worked around are teams I've built myself. Mm -hmm. So I, um, yeah, I mean, that's also a great part about doing your own thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but so I, yeah, it's just, it's normal for mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. um, I know you're married to a lovely person who I've had the pleasure of meeting. <laughs> How, what has it been like managing being both a partner and a CEO building this company at the same time? Yeah, I mean, I think for anyone starting a company at whatever phase in life and whatever, you know, whether, whatever situation you're in, there's trade-offs and rebalancing of things in your life, no matter what. Um, so, so yeah, I guess in my case, um, I did have a partner when I started Blueprint and um, he's just, I, I actually don't know if I wouldn't, I don't, he gave me the extra push to go for it. I mean, it was a huge risk, um, both personally and professionally to do, and um, obviously would have a major impact on our current life at the time. So he was incredibly supportive and, um, I don't know, it's something I'm also very grateful for. And, but I, you know, in the day to day, it's just, you know, it's constantly making sure you're aware of your time. I mean, it's time. It's all about time really. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that that's the scarce resource and, um, uh, just making sure you're slicing and dicing it the right way. And you do have to sacrifice a few things. I don't um, keep in touch with a lot of my friends as much, but it's hard because everyone's spread out. So, you know, most people these days, I feel like we're also spread out, but, uh, but yeah, it's things like that. And um, I'm not like as cool as I used to be, you know, <laughs> not doing all these cool things all the time. <laughs> Building the company's cool. <laughs> um, so, you know, things like that, but it's what you want to do. So it's fine. Mm. Do you remember what your husband said when you first said, I'm thinking about starting Blueprint? Uh, he, yeah, he basically said to me that I would regret it if I didn't try it. And uh, it was one of those moments where you, he knew what I was feeling and thinking before I did. And, um, you know, that's, that's what he said to me. That's good advice. Yes. <laughs> Where will you and Blueprint Power be in five years? Oh, so, uh, okay, another Google example. So uh, I don't know if anyone ever walked through the lobby of Google ever, but they had a really cool visualization of a globe, a 3D globe with all these dots coming out of cities around the world to show the volume and, you know, speed of internet usage, like Google queries. And uh, my friend Amit Patel, he put it together and you just were like, wow, look at this. This is the world today. So I would like one of those for like blueprint networks <laughs> <laughs> all over the world, you know, just different cities. And you can see uh, really like a lot of data flowing up, decisions being made, clean energy being distributed. I just, that's how I see it in my head. Um, so I, yeah, in five to 10 years, there'll be blueprint networks. Um, you know, cities scattered around the world, decarbonizing, um, you know, the built environment, making a lot of money for people and, uh, you know, strengthening the infrastructure around us for everyone. 
you mentioned Davos this past week in Switzerland, where the entire focus was on renewable energy, this global shift that is inevitable, um, but needs to happen faster. Um, based on the, all the global leaders that you've worked with in your career already and the work you're leading now with Blueprint Power, where do you see the future of energy in not just of Blueprint, but of energy mm -hmm. generally in also five to 10 years? Um, I think it will be a vast system of, of interconnected solutions. Um, you know, it'll be a mix of large-scale, distributed, um, many different layers of software and intelligence, um, hopefully a lot of new business models. <laughs> um, I think that's like the last thing to be coming. Um, and I'd like to see redesigned uh, governance as well around the energy industry, whether that's state regulatory frameworks or national, you know, wherever you are. Um, I think that's like the last big piece of friction facing, you know, real evolution here. So there should be a lot of um, new constructs, new ways of governing. Uh, it, I want it, I wish it'll be more like a free market kind of um, scenario, less of a you know, heavily regulated uh, approach that it's been historically. Um, but the world is so complex today, whether you're talking about data security, data ownership, obviously carbon, all of those things are, are major factors in the new um, future of energy. So that's going to impact a lot of the regulatory framework too. Uh, so I don't know what that looks like, but my, my hope is that it, it's, it looks very different than it does today. Well, hopefully Blueprint will be a big part of making that change a reality and accelerating it. Yes. Yeah. You have some thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> Moving into our high voltage round, you're our first guest that has two names that are both animals. Um, so Robin <laughs> Beavers. Uh, and so I'm really curious, uh, if you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? <laughs> Yes, I've thought about this question a lot in my life. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I really like, like, a, I'd be a beaver. It's nature's engineer. Um, so they, yeah, it's a cool animal. And it it helps, It, I mean, in some ways it's annoying because it, it, it does uh, redesign the, the natural environment and alter it in some ways that aren't so good, but some ways just, like, really impressive. Um, they're... Uh, I don't know. I just think they're really fascinating. I also learned recently they're like incredibly neurotic. Like that's why they work so fast is because they're just like, ah. Like, Does I that gotta, resonate? Does yeah, that I mean a little bit. So yeah, I learned that recently. I was like, oh, Did someone tell sense. you that or did you find I out I watched yourself? a documentary. <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. <laughs> Recommend it. Uh, but yeah, so that would be it, I think. Makes sense. If you had to start a new career tomorrow and you've started a few new careers, yeah. what would it be? Oh, man, that, I can't even think about that right now, but uh, probably take a little break. Um, I don't know. Have you ever done that? A uh, couple of times, but I wasn't very good at it. I'd be <laughs> good at taking a break. That's what I would really strive for. Um, I, I don't know. I think there's, again, in this future of energy context, I love real estate. I love the built environment. I'm more interested in regulatory stuff than I ever used to be. I don't know. I just think there's going to be a lot of different solutions and options on how to keep pushing, thing in the, pushing things in the right direction. So it's hard to imagine exactly what that would be, but I, I, I'm pretty sure I'll still be trying to push things one way or another. Other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? Oh, well, my family, of course. They've been amazing. Um, my partner, you know, um, I'm very happy I met him. Um, yeah, but there's just like a lot of, it's a support network you've developed your whole life. And um, I am grateful for all of them. And it's fun to see who, I, I don't know, it's like friends, parents, you know, there's just like, it's always good. People are important. And um, I've learned a lot from a lot of people and want to continue doing that as well. When have you failed? Oh, I mean, oh, so many plane. times. Yeah, I mean, I failed my first test in AP computer science. And <laughs> um, I've, yeah, I failed a lot. I actually think I learn better first by doing it. I, I, my learning style tends to be like I get stuck and it's, you know, you got to like push through in some extreme way and then it then it's all comes clear to me. So I think 
I, I mean, I don't want to fail. And I, especially now, I mean, that there's so much, you know, you want to, you want to win, you want to succeed, but um, I, I don't know. Stuff is hard for me, so I don't always get it right the first time. Mm. I think it's helpful to hear so often. I think when people look from the outside in, they see an entrepreneur or a founder like you, it's doing well, building this interesting company. And they're like, oh, this just, this comes easily, easily to you. And this is natural. And uh, it's helpful to hear that it's hard. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, my, my first sales pitch for Blueprint was a disaster. <laughs> and I had an executive from Lennar there trying to, you know, he made the intro and he was there and really helpful. And I mean, if he was here, he'd probably have a really funny story to tell about that. What, what, what I, you I don't tell know, the funny just, story? I, just, I don't know. It was just horrible. What, so, what, what, was, what was horrible about it? I, I don't even know what I said. I'm pretty sure it was word soup, like, you know... This really, uh, you know, senior real estate executive who had zero time and gave some, you know, I, it was just, I messed, I, I got, an, anyway, it was a mess. <laughs> we've, we've definitely all been there. <laughs> what is something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? Oh, that's a hard one. Um, that I no longer believe. Like recently, or can it be any time in life? Uh, so I think at some point I stopped, or it was more difficult for me to like idolize people or uh, look up to figures that I thought were ideal or um, inspirations, or um, I have a ton of respect for a lot of people, but I think it's harder for me knowing like human nature and how the world works and um, it's hard to put like people or, you know, whatever. I, it's hard for me to do that. Right. So I, um, I think that means I, I res my respect and admiration and inspiration comes in different ways, but I, I know it's really hard for me to like put someone in a category where I'm like, Oh man, like they're really, they're my idol or they're my, inspiration or I'm just like a diehard fan. It's, I, it's really hard for me to do that. And I think that's something that maybe I was good at doing at an earlier age and I'm not anymore. Um, so that's not meant to be like super cynical, but I, it, I just noticed that about myself. And so it's, you learn from people in different ways and in many ways it helps you expand your, um, your awareness and res respect for a lot of different kinds of people. What is your worst trait? Oh, uh, Gosh, um, I uh, probably, man, there's so many. <laughs> uh, I, well, my worst trait, I think professionally, my worst trait is I um, over, I have a hard time communicating simply co um, complex concepts and want to overthink or want to over communicate. Uh, so I think that gets in my way a ton. Um, and then personally, I don't know, probably just work, you know, not good at taking care of like myself, like putting myself first or, you know, the normal slow down self-care kind of stuff. So I've had to really work on that too. Hmm. Any message to entrepreneurs on that front? Um, do it. It's really <laughs> important. Um, but also talk to other founders about it too, because I think um, comparing notes or just like... Uh, both, you know, commiserating that we all stink at it and, you know, could be better is, is really helpful. If you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? Oh, well, I, I feel like that's like all I do is try to change it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I don't know. Um, I would probably try to find ways to make it less polarized feeling now that is disconcerting and stressful. Um, so I'd like that noise. This is another thing I've been thinking about is um, like data and privacy and how that cat sort of out of the bag. And I, I sort of feel like the data emissions of our current lives is similar in nature to early stage carbon emissions and like the scope of the problem um, not quite being understood and in like 10 to 15 years, it's going to become this massive issue. Everyone's trying to figure out how to coordinate and solve, just like climate change. Um, so that's, uh, that is another like 
kind of serious thing I think about would be good to change. Um, I'm not sure. I have no idea how to, how to do that. If there was just one or two people who were going to hear this podcast, who would you want them to be? Oh, interesting. Beyonce. <laughs> Obviously. That uh, is a first. <laughs> Jay-Z owns buildings. <laughs> um, and has an album named Blueprint. Oh, wow. Okay, if anyone has any connections and can make this happen, let's do this. Um, and so that would be her. And... Uh, I don't know, probably, um, yeah, I guess I'd love for my team to hear it to, so that they know how like hard they've worked and how awesome they've been. That's great. And they'd also be excited about Beyonce too. <laughs> we, we would all be excited about Beyonce. <laughs> Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because? Um, of people issues. If you really knew me, you would know? Uh, that I am quirky. <laughs> Success is? Uh, believing in what you've done. If I could have done one thing differently, I would have? Oh, I would have like studied abroad in college. <laughs> 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 or like done more fun things in college. <laughs> where, where would you have gone? Oh, probably like South America, yeah. Good choice. <laughs> if the world knew me for one thing, it would be? Uh, believing in women and energy and engineering. I'm most proud of? Uh, sticking to what I've always believed in. To build a successful startup, what it takes is? Uh, um, what's the right? Stubbornness? <laughs> <laughs> Or like a high pain threshold. <laughs> well said. With that, please give a massive round of applause for Robin Beavers. You can listen to all our What It Takes interviews since 2017 right here. And join us for news stories of founders who are building a carbon-free future. Their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. We're launching new episodes monthly throughout 2021. Subscribe everywhere you get your podcasts. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse in partnership with Postscript Audio. Powerhouse partners with leading corporations and investors to help them lead the next century of clean technology innovation. Our fund, Powerhouse Ventures, invests in founding teams, building innovative software to rapidly transform our global energy and mobility systems. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund. That's powerhouse.fund. Our executive producer is Stephen Lacey. Our producers are Jamie Kaiser, Rye Story Fisher, and Emma McDonough. Sean Marquand mixed the episodes and composed our music. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes. <laughs>